As you take your seat, I'd encourage you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. Before we get into that text, though, I just want to take a, a few minutes, and we want to we want to remember and we want to honor mothers in our midst. You know, Psalm 127 verse 3 says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Children are like an inheritance, the psalmist says, and a reward. And so today we celebrate, today we remember, today on Mother's Day, yet we recognize that for many, maybe most, today's a great day of joy. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a day to just rejoice in the fact of that calling. It's a high calling. And in our culture, where it's uh, at times inappropriate to say certain things about certain people, I want to say wholeheartedly, it's a high calling to be a mother. It often takes more than you have, right, moms? And uh, the results are not under your control. But today also we recognize is a day of potential pain. It could be a day of sorrow. It could be a day of regret. It could be a day of loss. I remember the Mother's Day of 1978 because of the pain and the sorrow and the loss that my bride was experiencing that day because we'd lost our first child in, several months earlier in the fall at birth. And a day when we thought we would be celebrating, uh, there was that great void, there was that great loss. And then when our next child was born, who is now our oldest daughter, when she got married and wanted to start a family, um, she and her husband were unable to, even though they tried diligently for 15 years but it was not God's design for them. And so I remember year in and year out in various churches observing her pain that she felt on this day to the degree that sometimes she would not even attend because of what was happening. The joy, though, and the pain, we want to acknowledge both. If for no other reason than every one of us sitting here in this sanctuary today are sitting here because of a mother. My mother, Debbie's mother, are both face-to-face -face with Jesus now, so I can't speak to my mother today, but if your mother's still living, I just urge you, please, reach out to them, have a conversation, if nothing else. You know, if you forgot the candy or the flowers or the, the cooked breakfast or forgot to make reservations for lunch, at least just the gift of your presence the flip side of that, as I was struck this morning as I drove early to, and came across the, the bridge uh, over, the, over the, the, the river, I was struck by how many moms were on that water out there. There were boats everywhere. Certainly were, there weren't any men out there, right? There, weren't any, there were no husbands out there. They were at home taking care of business, right? No. Let's not do that, okay? Let's give the gift of, of presence at least uh, to our mothers that are still living. And as a result of that, again, before we get into the text, uh, I want to pray. I want to pray again 
We, we can't pray too much in a worship service, right? I want to pray again, but what I want to do is I want to pray the blessing that God gave uh, through Moses and Aaron that the Levites were to give to the nation of Israel. I want to pray that blessing. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, would you bless the mothers in our midst? Would you keep those mothers close to you? Lord God, would you make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them? Lord God, would you lift up your countenance upon them and give, you, give them peace? Father, that's our prayer. That's our desire is as we remember, as we honor mothers in our midst, we do so because of the design of your word. We do so because of the design of creation. We do so because we want to acknowledge the truth of your word. And so would you bless the mothers in our midst? Would you bless those mothers maybe who aren't with us, but who brought us into this world and give us an opportunity to communicate our love for them today? And now, Lord, again, as we turn our attention to your word, would you guide us, we pray, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. One more little caveat before we get into today's text. I want to remind you that Resurrection Sunday is now five weeks in the rearview mirror, and I don't want you to forget that. And the reason for that is, is as you reflect on that, if, again, I said this three weeks ago, but if the historical events of the 40 days after Resurrection Sunday, if those were occurring today in real time right now, Jesus would still be present here. He would still be present in our midst. Possibly today, this morning, he would have cooked breakfast for Peter and some of the disciples on the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. We don't know exactly when that occurred, but it did occur sometime during these 40 days. We're less than a week away from Ascension Day. You all know that Ascension Day is this Thursday, right? And we don't celebrate that as much as maybe we should as a church, but I put that on your calendar because that's the day when 40 days after resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven. Without the ascension, he's not at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. So I don't ever talk about the resurrection without also coupling it to the ascension. And then, of course, 10 days after that, 50 days after Resurrection Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. That happens to be the day that we're going to have a, a combined worship gathering. And so we'll do, we'll do a, a little bit of something that day to acknowledge the fact that it's the birth of the church, that it's Pentecost Sunday. Okay, with those, with those things aside, let's, let's get into the text. Let's dive into this and open your Bible there and keep it open because I want you to see the context for the text. The verses, verses 10 through 14 that we'll be looking at this morning... They're not just a standalone story, but rather they fit within this narrative of Matthew that he has been spinning and that Jesus has been telling. And it's, it's, we need to understand that to have a better sense of what's happening here. So just flip back a page to chapter 17, and you'll remember that chapter 17 started with the great story of the transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John on a special kind of field trip, and they go up this mountain, and they're introduced to Elijah and Moses, and they see Jesus in all of his glory. And when they come down off that mountain, they discover that their colleagues, in the meantime, have been attempting to do an exorcism, albeit not effectively. 
And so Jesus ends up healing a little boy who's been possessed by a demon. And then Jesus reminds them again in verse 22 that he's going to suffer. He's going to be delivered and suffer on their behalf. He's in fact, is going to be killed, but he's going to be raised again. Three weeks ago, we talked about that, and, and I said that they, the text says they were greatly distressed. In fact, the other two accounts, Mark and Luke, say th- they were so confused, they didn't know what to say, so they didn't ask him anything. They, they, were, they were speechless. And then we get to verse 1, and last week, Pastor John was here, our pastor from Gladstone, and he unpacked the verses that precede today's text. And in verse 1, notice, at that time, so they've, they've come down off, off, the, uh, off the mountain. Uh, Jesus has done a healing. Jesus has dispatched Peter to go fishing to collect a coin to pay a temple tax. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus. You'd think they'd want to know what happened up there. Can you tell us about it a little bit as well? Or what's Peter doing? Where'd you send him? No, look at their question. Verse 1 of chapter 18. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's like, wow. There's times when I just, I don't, I just scratch my head. I don't have much hair to scratch. I've got a lot of head. I just scratch my head. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. Come on, guys. They're, they're discussing amongst themselves, maybe arguing amongst themselves, who's the greatest. They're doing this comparison contrast thing. And so what does Jesus do? Well, in verse 2, he takes a child, invites a child actually into their midst, and he places a child right there, and you've got exhibit A for what he's about to talk about. But I must tell you, this text is not a children's sermon. He's going to use that child as an illustration to make a very strategic point. Namely, in verse 4, he says, whoever humbles himself like this child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He takes their question, their expectations, and he flips it upside down. And then he says in verse 6, and this is key to where we're headed today, he says, one of these little ones who believe in me. He transitions from using this child as an illustration of humility And he's now going to start talking about little ones, little ones. But again, this is not a children's sermon. He's not talking about this child anymore. He's talking about little ones who believe in him. I believe that reference, that phrase is speaking of disciples because that's who he's talking to, his disciples, followers of Jesus, those who profess to know and follow Jesus. So today's passage, verses 10 through 14, are interrelated to the previous narrative, but they also connect to what's coming. This morning in the first gathering, I I mentioned, and I said, I'll say it again, I said said to Eric that I'm not going to steal from his message next week. He's preaching next week. But there's a connection. You can't get to next week until you go through this passage today. And the point of this passage is that Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple or my little one, then you've got to be humble like this child. If you're going to be a disciple of me, a follower of me, then you're going to learn, have to learn how to care for your fellow disciples, 
Instead of standing around in a circle over here, kind of arguing and bantering about who's the greatest, comparing and contrasting, no. You're going to have to learn how to care for your fellow disciples even more than you care for yourself. So that's the backdrop to where we're headed. And that leads into the text today, and it leads into what I'll share as, as what we call our my big idea, or the main thought, the main point that I think is coming out of the text today, namely this. And if we could put it on the screen, that'd be really helpful. Mainly this. Jesus illustrates how much every individual disciple matters to God. That's what he's going to do. This is a message of comfort. This is a message of great joy. This is a message that uh, we should all be able to to, to just let it let kind of roll over us as, as a healing salve. Jesus illustrates how much every individual disciple matters to God. I want that to be an encouragement to you. We'll see as we go through the passage. And as we go through the passage, we're going to be looking for some things. I call them observations. We're going to be looking for how God cares for his disciples. How does he do that? Why does he do that? So look with me at verse 10 again. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Could we have that uh, verse up on the screen as well? See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 10 is pointing back to the first six verses of this chapter. It's connecting us back to what he had said about humility. And he starts by saying, take heed. We translate the word see. He means take heed. Pay attention that you don't despise one of these little ones, that you don't think little or nothing of. That's what the term despise means. Not taking them seriously, giving their interests little or no priority. You know, the Apostle Paul says something similar when he talks about, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, Christian, right? Jesus is saying the same thing here. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, one of my disciples. Now, not only is this not a children's sermon, but this is not a proof text for individual guardian angels. As a kid growing up in Sunday school, watching Bible stories on flannel graphs, I think I was taught that. I think it was embedded in there somewhere, that every person has an individual guardian angel. That's not what this text is teaching. This text is not a proof text for that. Now, it is true that angels will be sent and will minister to those who inherit salvation. We know that from Hebrews chapter 1. But nowhere else in Scripture, and not even in a Jewish tradition of the time of Jesus during the New Testament period, nowhere is there any suggestion that there is one angel per person. That I've got a guardian angel, you've got a guardian angel, you have a guardian angel. That's not there. It's not in the text. Again, this is one of those things where we have these preconceived ideas of what's in Scripture when maybe it's not really there. And so we we always want to pay careful attention to the text What's possibly there, however, this reference to angels always seeing the face of my Father who is in heaven, what's possibly there is this, simply that the interests of these little ones, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, it's 
fully represented. It's without interruption in the very presence of God. In other words, when a disciple is despised, their plight is drawn to the attention of God himself. In fact, those who might be despised on earth are in fact represented in heaven by angels who have face-to-face access to God. They're in the throne room with God, according to verse 10. And you get the sense here? They're, they're like poised. They're awaiting instructions to, to, to go, how to go and when to go, to minister to the little ones, to minister to God's disciples. That's the picture that's being presented there. There's an observation that bubbles to the surface in verse 10, and here's what it is. His disciples are known by God. His disciples are known by God. God knows you. God knows your name. God knows everything about you. Debbie and I have a 50-year long-standing great relationship, and we know a lot of things about each other, but she doesn't know anything compared to what God knows about me, and vice versa. His disciples are known by God. Christian, believer, disciple, little one, brothers, sisters, God knows you. Let that sink in. God knows you. He knows your pain. He knows your joy. He knows you. God knows you. Before we get into verse 12, I need to tell you that Verse 11 is not in the text. And you're going, wait, what? Well, look at your Bible. If you have an ESV, it goes from verse 10 to verse 12. It skips right over verse 11. And that's because in the earliest manuscripts from from which Matthew's gospel came, it did not exist. It shows up later in a a later manuscript, and and this is what's added. It's actually what's found in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now, that's a great truth. That's there. That's a great truth. And it's in Luke 19.10. It's in the manuscripts there. But it wasn't here. And what's the point? Well, the point is, I don't want you to go home today when you're discussing a sermon and having, you know, roast preacher. I mean, when you're really diligently looking into God's word, right, today. I don't want you to say, hey, wait a minute, why didn't Pastor Tim talk about verse 11? Well, because it's not there. It's not in the text. It is in Luke, but it's not in Matthew. Let's look now at verse 12. What do you think? I just love the way Jesus invites his disciples into this exercise, into this learning moment, right? What do you think? And then he tells a parable. It's a wonderful parable. We're going to unpack it here. If a man has a hundred sheep, that's a normal kind of average size for a shepherd in the first century. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Jesus is inviting his disciples into the discussion, into the, into, uh, the opportunity here by telling a parable, and through the parable, he's inviting his disciples to refocus their attention. Where's their attention been? On each other, as they've been posturing for who's the greatest, right? He's saying, no, I need you to focus on God. Focus on God as a shepherd, on the character of God as a shepherd. So he tells this parable, and it represents God's heart as that of a shepherd, something they could all relate to, something very specific to their culture. 
And even more specifically, more directly, how God seeks and rescues the sheep that is wandering away from the rest of the flock. Now, this parable also appears in Luke 15. If I was delivering this sermon in a teaching opportunity down the hallway in the the adult Bible class, we would invest probably the next half hour doing a comparison between Luke's presentation of this parable and Matthew's presentation. Let me give you the Cliffsnote version version of this. Uh, His audience is different. I believe Jesus is telling the exact same parable, but to two different contexts, two different audiences. And Luke 15 records that one. Matthew 18 records this one. In Luke, Jesus uses lost sheep to represent unsaved sinners, people who are not yet in the flock, people who who have not yet stepped into the kingdom of God. Matthew's uh, application of the parable is to errant disciples. Do you see the difference? It's to, he's talking to his disciples. In Luke 15, he's talking to the religious leaders who don't know God, and he's rebuking them. Here, he's talking to his disciples. It's a teaching moment. He's, make, he's illustrating what it means to humble yourself. He's illustrating what needs to happen when one of you goes astray. And so, his, whereas Luke's parable, you could say this, Luke's parable is more evangelistic, reaching the lost who don't yet know Jesus, who are not yet in relationship with God, whereas Matthew's emphasis is pastoral. He's talking about pastoral care. He's talking about these disciples needing to learn how to care for one another within the context of that flock. And that's really important because as I've already referenced, next Sunday's sermon on verses 10, 15 through 20 will deal with a very practical uh, implication of that. And so he wants to make sure they understand they get the heart of God as a shepherd. Get that emulate that before he gets into the next section of verses. The 99 here refer then to faithful followers of Jesus, faithful disciples who currently have no need to repent like the one because they're not not straying from him. They're They're still with him. They're still in relationship with him. The wandering sheep, I believe, is a believer. He's one of these little ones, the text says, But he's wandered away. And what he's wandered away from is intimate fellowship with his father, as well as the consistent obedience of doing what his father, his shepherd, has told him to do. That term, gone astray, I want you to notice in verses 12 and 13, it appears three times. A key... uh, principle of biblical hermeneutics, right? Biblical interpretation is when you see repetition like that, kind of stop and say, why is that there? And it's generally there for emphasis, to make a point. So verse 12, gone astray. Verse 12 at the very end, went astray. And the very end of verse 13, went astray. The term means to wander or to roam about. little factoid for those of you that are interested in in science and your mind kind of gravitates that way. The English term that we use for planet, 
when we're describing things like Jupiter and Saturn and Mercury and Mars, those are planets. That word planet comes directly from this Greek term. In fact, it sounds like it because the word means wander or roam about. And early astronomers, as they gazed into the sky, it appeared that what we call planets were just kind of roaming about, wandering about the heavens. They're not always in a consistent spot necessarily, right? And so we've come up with that term. Here's an observation. Disciples or followers of Jesus or little ones are vulnerable. They're vul- we're vulnerable to going astray. We're vulnerable to wander. There's a hymn about that, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? Disciples are vulnerable. And when, by comparing this little one to a wandering sheep, this reveals to his disciples that they're prone to do the same thing. Let's make that present tense. We're prone to do the same thing. Each and every one of us. The 99 that weren't yet wandering, they're prone to wander, right? And so this parable is really directed at each of us as individual followers of Jesus. Jesus' goal here is this. He wants to instruct his disciples about their character as members of God's kingdom. God has called them into this kingdom relationship, and he's, he wants to make sure that they understand what their character is to be like, specifically what their character is to be like as it relates to their fellow disciples, especially the one who's gone astray. He, want to make, he wants to make sure they get this before he moves on, and as, as we un, continue to unpack and unfold the narrative of Matthew, They're headed south. They're going to leave Galilee soon, and they're going to head to Jerusalem, and Jesus is on his way to his suffering and his crucifixion. It's interesting, though, that this love for that individual single sheep is not at the expense of the flock, the rest of the flock, but rather as part of the flock as a whole, that shepherd doesn't want to lose one single one. You know, the, the businessman or woman in the, in, the, in the congregation here might say, yeah, but I could see Judas Iscariot seeing, or maybe even Matthew himself saying, well, you got a hundred, eh, you know, they're expendable. Yeah, you're not going to find him anyways. He's expendable anyways, right? The, the text is showing us just the opposite of that. The heart of God, the character of God, not wanting to lose a single one. And so God takes the initiative And he goes to great lengths, as the shepherd does, to bring back to himself those who have been estranged from him, those who are wandering away from him. In fact, the parable says the shepherd takes this so seriously that he leaves the 99 on the mountainside in order to seek and to save the one that's lost. Here's another observation. God pursues, God searches, God seeks after his wandering disciples. He does that. And this isn't the only place we see Jesus doing this. He's telling a parable here about this, but we actually see Jesus practicing this. On the day of of resurrection, later that day, Jesus is found on the road to Emmaus 
pursuing two disciples. One's named Cleopas, the other one is not. They're headed to Emmaus. Now, the angel, if you remember the story at the tomb, the angel said, go to Galilee and he'll meet you there. Well, Galilee is a day plus journey north. They're headed about seven to nine miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's like, what are you doing? They're probably going home. I love that Luke chapter 24. It's probably my favorite chapter. I love to preach that chapter more than anything else in the New Testament. There's so much there. It's so rich. We see this pursuing, searching, seeking, resurrected Jesus coming after two disciples that are already wandering away from what they've been told to do. And then I mentioned, I referenced uh, Peter. Peter and his handful of his disciples, they had gone to Galilee eventually within that 40-day time period after resurrection. And Peter kind of throws his hands up and says, I'm going to go fishing. There at least, you can tell he's frustrated. He's going to go, he's going to go do what he knows to do. Does he catch anything? No. And as they come back in that morning, they look on shore and they see Jesus with a little, uh, little charcoal fire there with the smoke curling up. And Jesus is waiting for them. He's already caught the fish or created it. And he's already prepared it. And he's already cooked it. And then after breakfast, we see Jesus inviting Peter for a walk on the beach. John chapter 21. And what is he doing? He's restoring Peter. He is bringing back a wandering disciple because he's got big plans for him, right? And Peter's denied him three times. And Peter knows that. And so does Jesus. And so Jesus invites him in to express his love, Peter, to express express his love to Jesus three times. And, And he restores him to the calling that he's given to him. So God pursues and searches after wandering disciples. And though only one is missing, the shepherd changes his whole normal routine that evening. He concentrates all his energy on recovering that one lost sheep. In fact, he's prepared to leave 99 at some risk in order to ensure the safety of the one that strayed. There there appears to be almost a disproportionate investment of effort and concern directed towards one. And it it almost looks like the one is temporarily more important than the 99. But the point is, it's the heart of God. He's not going to let any single one slip out of his hands. He's going to rescue them. Look with me at at verse 13. And if he finds it, Truly, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. The opening words, and if he finds it, are equivalent to saying something like, if in fact he finds it. It's not a guarantee. This is a clause that doesn't doesn't assume success here. It implies that there may be success. In fact, it's as if, you could translate it as if, If he gets to find it, he says, when that happens, he's going to rejoice over it. Here's another observation. Reclaiming wandering disciples leads to what? It leads to a slap on the wrist. It leads to a hit across the the legs with a staff. No, that's not what it says. It says it leads to joyous celebration. He rejoices over it 
even more so than the others. The shepherd finds joy in the lost sheep who is found. In fact, in Luke's account of this, Luke 15, verse 5, this is what it says. Luke says, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Oh, I love that. If, if you, this afternoon, do an internet search on Luke 15, 5. Just plug in Luke 15, 5 images. And what will pop up are multiple photographs of Middle Eastern shepherds carrying little lambs, little lost lambs on their shoulders. I've showed this to Deb this week, and she goes, I bet you that as that, that shepherd's walking, re- rescuing and restoring that lost sheep, I bet he's whispering to the sheep how much he loves them. That's the picture. That's the sense you get here, this joy that results from finding the lost sheep. Now, something that just doesn't jump off the page, but I want to call to your attention because I think it's very important. This parable that Jesus is telling is actually rooted in an Old Testament prophecy. And I want to show you four verses out of Ezekiel's prophecy. In Ezekiel chapter 34, if you're taking notes, you can jot that down. You can look at these up later. But I want to read these for you, beginning with verse 11. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. If we could have it on the screen, thank you. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Let me just stop right there. In the previous verses, Jesus has been rebuking the leaders of Israel because they had been called to be shepherds of his people and they had been failing miserably. So God says, I'm going to do it. Verse 12, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then in verses 15 and 16, he repeats, God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. Of course, Jesus knew of that prophecy when he tells the parable. I think his disciples had an inkling as well that Jesus is speaking out of the context of their Bible, of the Old Testament, of Ezekiel chapter 34, and now is applying it to them. Essentially, what Jesus is doing here is he's teaching his disciples that there is great joy in reconnecting those who have disconnected themselves from God and that relationship. Does that sound familiar? That's our mission statement. New Life Church's mission statement. You can go on our website today and refresh your memory. Engaging people disconnected from God so that they delight in him through Jesus. And that mission statement at first glance appears to be talking to the sinner yet to be saved by God's grace, and it certainly is. But it's also speaking to those of us who know Jesus, who profess allegiance, but who have fallen away, who have gone astray. We want to engage people that are disconnected so they might delight in him through Jesus. I want that to create comfort and encouragement and joy I I want those emotions to be welling up inside you this morning. Knowing this love, this care that our Heavenly Father as a shepherd shows for us 
should bring a big, big smile to our, our face as well as our heart. Look at verse 14. Jesus has told the parable in verses 12 and 13, but he brackets with that statement in verse 10, and then he concludes with another bracket in verse 14. He's drawing a conclusion here, and it's an interesting way to phrase it, almost as if it's a double negative. He says, so it is not the will of my Father. It's kind of an unusual way, right? We typically expect Jesus to say, this is the will of my Father. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The observation is clear on this one. God desires that no one, no one should perish. And again, that's just not a thought in a parable. Timothy, in first, Paul in 1 Timothy and Peter in his second epistle make the same statement. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people, not just cool people, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Debbie reminded me this week that the illustration I'm about to share, she, she thinks I shared this earlier at some other time in the last six years. I don't remember it, so I'm going to share it again. And if you remember it, great. Space repetition is a key to learning. It'll, it'll make the point. The 19th century singer-song leader Ira Sankey was traveling with Dwight Moody, the great American evangelist Dwight Moody, and they were on an evangelism tour throughout the UK, specifically in Scotland. He, uh, Sankey had spotted a poem in a British newspaper, caught his attention, he tore it out of the paper, stuffed it in his pocket, and promptly forgot about it. Well, the next uh, day, at the end of their service in Edinburgh, Scotland, Moody asked Sankey on the spot for a closing song. And although initially kind of caught by surprise, the Holy Spirit prompted Sankey, reminding him of that poem in his pocket. So he pulled it out, opened it up, said a prayer, and composed the tune as he sung the song. And thus was born the classic hymn, The Ninety and Nine. Sankey's first attempt at ever writing a, a tune, he went on to write 1,200. And the opening lines of that hymn are based on the words of Jesus from today's passage. There were 90 and nine that safely lay in the shelter of the flock, but one was out on the hills far away, far off in the cold and dark, away on the mountains, wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care. I get emotional when I read those lyrics because that was my dad's favorite hymn. I'm guessing he's singing it in the presence of Jesus now, but my dad loved that hymn for two reasons. He loved it for Luke's reason, and he loved it for Matthew's reason. He loved it because he heard that 
from a friend of his that he worked with when my dad was lost in sin, was not yet a child of God, and was led to faith in Jesus. And he realized, like the parable in Luke, I was that guy out there with no hope, no help, and Jesus saved me. But he also loved the hymn because as a growing saint, as a growing disciple, he had his ups and downs, like we all do, right? And that hymn frequently brought him back, helped to restore him back, knowing that that same tender shepherd's care was there, drawing him back even when he would go astray. Jesus illustrates how much every single individual matters to God. He knows us. He knows how vulnerable we are, and then he pursues us. He seeks after us. He searches diligently for us. And when he finds us, what does he do? He rejoices. He rejoices over us as he restores us. Why? Because no one should perish. And that's his bottom line desire, that no one should perish. I want to urge you today, Christian, or urge you today, if you're not yet that, to turn from your wandering. Turn from your wandering. Maybe that's indifference. You know, I've heard this before. I've heard it way too many times. Yeah, whatever. To turn from that. Or maybe it's preconceived ideas of who Jesus is or how he should be or, or whatever, what he should look like. Turn from that. Turn from that wandering. And instead, embrace the truth of who God is, what his word says he is. Believing, trusting, and committing your life to that truth of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on your behalf. I urge you, like my dad, accept his forgiveness and then submit to his care. Submit to his authority over your life. And then do as I'm prone to say at the end of a message. And then obey his words. Follow in his, in his footsteps and bring others to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the simple clarity of this parable that we've looked at this morning. We can relate to that. We can identify with the imagery, with the picturesque language of a shepherd seeking after and restoring and caring for a lost sheep. Lord, would you help us now to take that to heart for ourselves when we're prone to wander? And Lord, for brothers, sisters who we know who have stepped away, maybe, maybe we're struggling this morning with the reality of a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter in our own families. Lord, if we're doing that, I pray that we would take great comfort, great joy from this passage and pray that you would restore that lost son, that lost daughter to relationship with you. Lord, we ask these things because we want our lives, we want the lives of our brothers and sisters, we want our lives to bring glory to you because of the love that you have for us, Lord Jesus, and the price that you paid to secure our salvation. Guide us now as we joyfully embrace uh, the reality of what we've just seen in the text, as we joyfully sing that from the bottom of our hearts, Lord. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.